Welcome to the Rosemont Baptist Church Podcast. Rosemont is a thriving group of believers who desire to connect with Jesus and His church, grow in our faith and understanding of God's Word, and serve Jesus here in our local area and around the world. We are located in LaGrange, Georgia at 3794 Hamilton Road and invite you to join us for either of our two services on Sunday mornings. Please visit our website at rosemontchurch.org for more information. And now we pray that God speaks to you in a personal way as you listen to this week's message from our missions pastor, Joe Fry. Good morning. My name is Joe. I'm the missions pastor here at Rosemont. We're going to be continuing in Isaiah. We'll be in Isaiah chapter 5. Um, but just to, to recap a little bit and to review, as we go through uh, the book of Isaiah, and really for any uh, Old Testament prophet's book as well, um, there's some key things that we need to always keep in mind uh, as we go through the text. Uh, the first thing that I want us to remember as we go through this morning and as we go and continue to for the rest of the time that we're in the book of Isaiah is the intent. Uh, and what I mean by that spe- uh, specifically is that uh, the intent was to affect change in those people's lives. And it affects change in our lives as well. But more so, over 90% of what the prophets said was immediate. It was for those people that were hearing that message in that day and age. Now, it's very relevant to us. We can draw a lot of truth out of it, but that means that less than 10% of it was about Jesus or Messianic prophecy, New Age Covenant, which is the the age we live in today as as New Covenant believers, or end times uh, prophecy. So 90% of what we read going forward uh, in the book of Isaiah, we can kind of presume is going to be about the people of Israel. Now, with that being said, a majority was immediate judgment, of course, but a lot of it was expressed poetically. And why I want to emphasize this is because what we're going to read today here shortly uh, was an ancient Hebrew poem uh, and written in a prophetic manner. Um, but a lot of what you're going to read, whether it's in the book of Isaiah or other books uh, in the Old Testament that are prophetic, are written in a very poetic uh, mind. So there's analogies, symbolism, all sorts of things, metaphors, etc. The prophets were given uh, a very specific message from God. This wasn't their own message. They didn't come up with it. And that's why they're succinct. They don't contradict each other. And they were always about uh, enforcing or reminding the people of Israel the covenant that they had with God. So they wanted to continue to remind the people, this is what you should be doing. This is what you are doing. And this is what God is going to do. And that kind of brings us to our last idea is that as we hear these uh, prophets speak, um, there's kind of different categories of what they're saying. And they can kind of be divided up generally into a few of these. One is the indictment. So we've sat here for the last few weeks and we've listened to a lot of like what the people of Israel were doing wrong. We've heard about what the women were doing wrong, what the men were doing wrong. We've heard generally as a nation what they were doing wrong, how they were lost. So these are called kind of indictments. And, and you can read them in any other prophet as well where they'll accuse the people of what they've done wrong. And then there's the woe or the warning. And there's a very lengthy one here. Um, we'll get into that later. Um, then there's a promise. So sometimes a promise is good. Uh, it, it's very restorative and, and maybe even messianic in the promise. Sometimes a promise is judgment as well. Um, and then finally, the prophet always brings them back to what they should be doing with the covenant and a constant reminder of that as well. So we kind of see these different things within what we're about to read as well. So Isaiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1, you can join me there. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. 
My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a vine uh, and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So let's pause there. Uh, these first couple verses are, are crucial for us to understand. And, and, and the first thing the prophet's saying is, "Let me sing for my beloved." So the prophet's describing the work of his beloved Lord, right? So we understand that. And we kind of, this kind of feels like almost like a Song of Solomon kind of idea here. Um, the prophet loves God. And you can feel that here. And then he says, my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. So especially in the holy land, fertile, necessary land to plant a vineyard, um, especially what vineyards produce, this very special, rare commodity. It was not just uh, randomly chosen. They would look around the area that they had and they would use the choice land for that. So here we can read into it that God had very specifically, very intentionally chosen where he wanted to plant his vineyard. He could have planted on any hill in the world because it was all his. But he chose this very specific place in his world that we call the Holy Land today. But he chose that and that's where he wanted to plant his redemption. And so... We know it was intentional, it was curated, it was a choice location, but the second part really tells us even more about who God is. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a, a wine vat in it. So here, what do we hear? We hear about God's work. We hear about the labor of the Lord. So God didn't just say, hey, that's where I'm going to plant it. He worked the ground. He did a lot of work. And, and so when we step back from this and you think about what were the original listeners to this message thinking maybe when they heard this, God had done a lot of work to get that vineyard started and to get it established. You go all the way back to the very beginning. You think about creation and the six days of creation and how much God labored and worked. And then the seventh day he rested. And then obviously we know that sin corrupted that. So then we move forward in the historical Bible and, and we land with an elderly couple. God decides out of all the people he could have started a people group with, he decides on this childless elderly couple that I'm going to start a family with this, this group of people. And so through the children, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, God slowly and meticulously and very intentionally guides these people to start to become not just a, a large family, but a, a people group, a nation. And he plants them and promises them this very specific land. And they leave that land for a time. They're in captivity, and we know the story of the Exodus. God guides them back out of there. He leads them through the desert. But throughout this whole story of this family and now their descendants— we see time and time again that they're turning their back on God. They don't believe fully his promises, whether it was the original couple not believing that God could really give them a child so they take it into their own hands, whether it was the children not following God completely, feeling jealousy and wrath. All these times, though, God is still laboring in the shadows. He's still working things for his glory. And finally, he brings them back to the promised land. He brings them back to what he promised that they would be theirs. And he does this work, right? He removes all the obstacles. He removes 
kingdoms. He removes city-states like Jericho. He gets all these things in order for them to come in possession of this. And what does the Scripture say? The second part of verse 2 is very indicting. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So we know that the outcome was not the real fruit of God's labor. So the prophet continues, and he says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What else could God have done? What else should he have done? We know there wasn't anything else for him to do. And if you go back, uh, and I, I just stopped, verse 4, what, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? So the prophet repeats his question again. Two times he says, why were there wild grapes whenever there should have been good grapes? And so maybe you're thinking, maybe you're a gardener and you're thinking, well, did the grapes have a choice? Like if I plant tomatoes and I get a bad yield or a bad harvest from tomato plants, I would think, was the soil bad? Did I get bad seed? Did I not protect them from pests or outside, you know, vermin or something like that? You know, maybe I plucked them too early, harvested them too early. Maybe I let them stay in the vine too long. I would, my mind would go to what did I do wrong? And here the, the prophet's saying, what else could God, though, have done? And, and Paul touches on this idea as well. So in the New Testament as well, obviously people are asking these kind of same, like, what, what more could God have done? So 1 Corinthians 6, 1, Paul challenges the reader and tells them, do not receive the grace of God in vain. So what does that mean? It means do not look at all the labor that God has done, all the work that he has done, and reject it. Because that's precisely what happened. And it wasn't just that Isaiah's preaching to this kingdom, to these people, and they were just in a, in a bad way. He kind of, they had been living just this great, obedient life, and then they were just kind of down on their luck and had turned from the Lord. That isn't the case. Like I just told you, this was cyclical, perennial disobedience over generations and generations, over hundreds of years. And so God had came, he had seen, and he had decided that they were disobedient. And so for that disobedience... For them rejecting the grace of God, rejecting the work and the effort he had put into them, God decides this, starting in verse 5. And now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, and it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So God says, I'm going to take away this hedge of protection I've placed around it. I've been guiding these people. I've been protecting them, keeping away all sorts of different kingdoms and nations away from them. At this point, I'm going to let them just fall to all of this. And, and it's a bleak description. And you're probably thinking, okay, so now we, have, we know what happened to Israel. If, if you've been in church long enough, you know that they fall, they get carried off into slavery. But there's a good reminder for us today as well. Going back to Paul's teachings, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Timothy 1, 
if you continue to not receive or reject the grace of God, Paul says in those verses that God will turn you over to Satan. And so we see, and the point of this is simply that God's feeling towards sin back then, feeling towards people who reject him back then is the same then as it is today. It's the same as in Paul's time in the new church as it is today. God's, he detests sin. He can't stand it. He hates it. But also, he can't stand for people who know his truth, who understand and have heard the labor of his work, and they'll turn, them of all people will turn their back on him. And that's precisely what the Israelites were doing. And so, finally, in, in that verse 7, the continued disobedience of his statutes, of his commandments, can only mean that Judah and Israel must perish and they must be punished. But you're probably thinking, well, that's not very hopeful. And, and that's what the next 23 verses are, are about is, is a woe. It's just a, a long warning. And so instead of going through all 23 verses, I, I want us to skip to, to verse 24. So verse 24 and 25 uh, is probably best how we can summarize these 23 verses of what uh, the warning is to the people and what God's activity or his action is going to be towards his people. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. And he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all of his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. So they refuse to obey God and the law that God has put there to help them. And not only do they reject it, what does it say? They say they hate it. They can't stand God's commandments. They don't want God to be the Lord of their life. And, and in 25, God's wrath is just against his people. Because his people rejected him in spite of knowing all that God had done for him. And God's wrath, it, it's still just against us whenever we choose to not believe in all the work that God has done. And we're going to get into what does that mean for us today as New Day Christians. So we're going to finish just like Adam last week. He talked about the vine and how it was very prominent in New Testament. Likewise, there's a whole parable about a vineyard in the New Testament. So I'm going to give you a quick second. If you'll turn to Matthew 21, that's where we're going to finish today. So Matthew 21, starting in verse 33. So give you a quick context. At this part in the book of Matthew, in the gospel of Matthew, uh, we're in Holy Week. So previously, the previous day before this, Jesus came in on Palm Sunday. Everybody celebrated him. He went to the temple. He went back out, uh, spent the night in Bethany. He comes back into the temple that morning to, to preach again. He curses the fig tree and then makes his way to the temple. And here are one of the teachings that he gave the people in the temple. So starting in verse 33, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press and in it, dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to its tenants and went into another country. So let me pause there. So you have to imagine this is Jesus and he's teaching in the temple. And you see all the connections there. Planted a vineyard, put a, put a fence around it, dug a wine press, built a tower. So we know that Jesus was trying to make a connection back to Isaiah 5. 
He's trying to show them the labor of the Lord. And then, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same thing to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. So, what's the connection here? Jesus has obviously painted a direct connection back to Isaiah 5 for his listeners. He's trying to show them not just the labor of God's love, because all we've talked about is warning and wrath, but in the shadows since the time of God's execution of his judgment against the people back in Isaiah 5, God has shepherded the line of David. He has got it all the way there, and he's sitting right in front of these people in the temple that that morning, receiving this teaching. And Jesus is trying to say, God, he hates sin, but he loves you so much. He's laboring even when you don't realize it. He's worked the history of the people of Israel to get to this point, but even more so, I'm here. I'm sitting in front of you, I'm about to embark on the most important labor of love. And we know how the ending of Holy Week goes. We know that Jesus died, but most importantly, just like we sang this morning, he rose again. And so, as we think about that, as we think about how much God labored for us, how much Jesus was trying to let the people know how important it was for him to labor for them, this is where it's the most important application for us this morning is that we have the luxury of knowing the full canon. Adam said that word last week. All it means is that we have the full Bible. We know the full measure of God's efforts to save us. We know everything he did in the Old Testament. We know how he worked all things to lead to Jesus being born in a manger in completion of so many prophecies. We know how he got Jesus all the way to the cross of Calvary. And we know how Jesus rose again. So many things that God had to shepherd and make happen in order for everything to be perfect. And so we sit here and we know these things. And this is where it's so important. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. Don't hear these things just like the Israelites. Know them, but not have it affect or change your life. And that, that, that's the point of this all. That's the point of what Jesus was trying to tell these people here. That's the point of the poem, the warning. Know how much God loves you. Know how much he hates sin. And know that he is continuing to work for you so that way you can know him. You can be reconciled to him. And you can receive forgiveness. Now, the final thing we we think about here as a church, we don't want to be found as sour grapes as as Jesus' church, as Christ's church. And when he comes... For the fruit in their seasons, we want to be found as worthy tenants. We want to be found as tenants living in obedience. So for us as a church, for us specifically here in this community as Rosemont, it's just a challenge. It's a simple challenge to not receive the grace of God in vain. 
even more so to be actively pursuing him. Actively believing that the full measure of God's love is contained in these pages. God labored to make sure that we have this book in its entirety and it's sufficient for us to know his love. So this morning I just want to challenge us, but I also want to pray for us as well. I want to pray for this church. I want us to really focus on how much God loves us, how much he has endured, and how much he has worked to bring each and every one of us into this this building today, into relationship with him. But also, uh, maybe you are sitting here, and as Adam says, in a church this size, maybe you know all these things, but you have not allowed God to truly be the Lord of your life. Just like the people of Israel, they just were not allowed God to be their true king and Lord. And if that's the case, and you do know these things or want to know more about the labor of God's love, I just pray for you this morning that you would come to know him and come to understand how much God has worked so that way you will recognize how good it is to be in relationship with him. So I know the worship team will come out here uh, in a minute and we'll, we'll conclude our service, but let me pray for us and, and we'll continue. God, we, we just praise you. We thank you for your word. It's, it's clear through your spirit. And God, I just pray earnestly uh, for our church. I pray for each and every person here, for those that are far off as well. And God, most of all, I just pray that uh, we will always remember uh, how much you have worked for us to know who you are, how much you've done throughout the Bible uh, and, and even in our lives to this day. Uh, to make sure that we are fully aware of the love that you have for us. God, let us not receive that grace in vain. Let us not receive that message in vain, uh, but let it truly affect change in our lives. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you'd like to join us in person, we are located in LaGrange, Georgia at 3794 Hamilton Road, or join us online at 11 a.m. each Sunday morning.